Hi, my name's Todd Fraser. Welcome to the podcast. With me today is Associate Professor Andrew Davies, who is an intensivist from the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Victoria. Andrew has a long history of research in the critical care environment with a particular focus on nutritional needs of intensive care patients. He is a member of the executive of the Australia New Zealand Intensive Care Society Clinical Trials Group and a past president of the Australasian Society of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. And I've asked him to join me today to help me understand the role of total parenteral nutrition in the critical care environment. Thanks for joining me, Andrew. No problems, Todd. Andrew, I was wondering, the first place to start, I guess, is, uh, is when we should be using uh, parenteral nutrition, and there seems to have been some debate on whether to start early or late, and I was wondering whether you could explain your position or your understanding of the literature. Yeah, well, Todd, it's, uh, it's quite a controversial area, I guess, at the moment, uh, exactly when we should use parenteral nutrition. To, uh, to cut a long story short, I suppose there was uh, a long-held view um, over the last sort of decade and a half that uh, we, we would always do our absolute best to start enteral nutrition first, um, but more recently in the last five or so years, there's been a, a, a swing back towards using a bit more uh, parental nutrition, sometimes on its, on its own, but mostly uh, in a sort of supplementary uh, capacity. Um, but things have uh, really swung around again with the publication from the Belgian group uh, a couple of months ago that did a really large study, 4,600 patients, uh, looking at early versus late parental nutrition and found that uh, the early use of parental nutrition might actually be harmful to, uh, to ICU patients. There's some concern with the, the applicability of that study because as many might know that was uh, done in a group of patients who were largely elective and uh, cardiac surgical patients. Uh, and I guess most of us in, in Australia and New Zealand wouldn't have thought that, that uh, they'd be the sort of patients you would have ever given early parental nutrition to. So I'm not sure what, how we make of that, and I guess there's a lot more to talk about that study. But uh, there's, there's also other evidence coming out suggesting that, uh, that perhaps uh, parental nutrition as a supplemental uh, in a supplemental capacity does have some role. So I guess we're all waiting to hear what the next few years are going to bring with research. It's been fair to say that TPN developed a bad name over the last 20 or so years, isn't it? And why do you think it is that um, that people have swung back towards using TPN in the last little while? Well, I think that truly, Todd, that the uh, the the data from maybe 20 years ago start, was starting to show that uh, parental nutrition might have been associated with a greater amount of infectious complications uh, and, and this made people a bit, bit worried. I guess there's been a whole lot of pro-enteralists walking around telling everybody that it's uh, much more physiological to give enteral nutrition as well. Uh, so I guess therefore uh, there, were, there were two sort of good reasons why we should have swung away from TPN and there's been a whole lot of series of uh, you know, editorials and debates telling people that TPN was poison, you know, that sort of came out 10 or 15 years ago. And I suppose that was rational, but then more recently, uh, things have swung back in, partly because of the work of the, the um, glucose and everybody showing that intensive insulin therapy or at least better control of high glucose, perhaps we should put it, uh, is actually uh, associated with potentially some benefits. And, 
and therefore that uh, that's made people wonder whether the old studies on TPN were actually all because of the hyperglycemia that that uh, that came when you used parenteral nutrition. I think also the more modern use of parenteral nutrition is associated with a better composition. You know, more modern lipids and and uh, perhaps better uh, concentrations of, of glucose and and uh, and protein and things. So therefore, uh, it might be safer in our current environment. I don't know that we know that for sure, but that's where parenteral nutrition swung back. And I guess the other key role for it was considered that uh, we, we all know that we try our hardest to give enteral nutrition, but we sometimes find it hard to give enough of. Uh, a lot of our patients, when we survey them, seem to only get 60 or 70% of what we target with enteral nutrition due to all the reasons you know people know with poor tolerance and patients going off to procedures and uh, nasogastrics being pulled out and all that sort of thing. So to, to do that, people have thought, well, maybe we should just top them up a little bit with uh, parental nutrition. And I think that's where we've swung back towards that sort of uh, usage of it. You, you mentioned the concept of top-up TPN there. What, what evidence is there to support that? Is that uh, validated in the literature? No, unfortunately it's not. Uh, there's, there's been only four or five small studies uh, on topping up uh, parental nutrition. One was done in a burns group uh, and actually showed that it was, it was probably harmful, giving the, the, the parental nutrition. There's been a more recent study, which is now 10 or 12 years old, uh, from Europe that, that suggested a, 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 a top-up um, version of parental nutrition might have some benefits but certainly didn't show it. it wasn't a large enough study and when meta-analysis is done of those four or five studies there's, there's, there is not a, an advantage to, uh, to any important outcomes. So I guess we're waiting for studies. I'm, I'm aware of uh, several other, other studies that are, that are either in process or, or uh, have ones just finished and, and we're all waiting to hear what they, they might say. The one that's just finished I, I heard presented recently in, uh, in Europe at a European meeting and it's a Swiss group that have done uh, a two-centre study of about 300 patients using a top-up version of parental nutrition uh, on top of the enteral and they found that that did indeed lower infectious complications in their patients. Uh, smallish, 300 patients and it wasn't associated with any other major outcome improvements such as mortality so I guess we're waiting to, to see future studies. A big group in Canada are planning a, a, a thousand patient or so study in this area and that still hasn't got off the ground, but there's more to come, obviously, over the next little while. You mentioned meta-analysis there, and this, to me, is one of the major weaknesses of meta-analysis. We, you mentioned the quality or, or the, the progress in, in the technology that may invalidate the results of, of past trials, but we almost seem to be unable to escape our history, don't we, with TPN. How do you see us overcoming that issue? No, it's a very, very complex one. Todd and I, I think the uh, it is there is a lot of difficulty because a lot of the recommendations in in nutrition in critical care and, and even in in other parts of critical care are made based on meta-analysis results and, and I think we do as, as readers and users of that literature uh, have to be very careful about what, what we do. My, my, my view and perhaps it's a little bit uh, narrow is that meta-analysis is truly hypothesis generating for a future study and that's great if you can get the study off the ground but uh, if, you, if you can't then we're left with a whole lot more uh, questions that are unanswered but I think we truly have to be nervous about using meta-analysis for uh, treating our patients. 
Now, having made the decision to give some TPN, uh, I find that certainly the, the concept of TPN becomes very complicated the more I think about it, and it's tempting to oversimplify it and just hang a bag of isocaloric feed at one mil per kilo per hour and, and go from there, but I was hoping that you could help me to refine this a little. I guess the first question is, what are the targets that we should be using? Is there any best way to calculate how much a patient needs? Oh, the, the first comment to that, Todd, is I, I don't think it's a terrible idea just to hang up a, a sort of standard feed. <laughs> the 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 parental nutrition companies and and uh, you know and the whole critical or TPN movement has been to, to simplify it because I think we made it very complex before. We made it uh, TPN something that you know a specialised doctor had to come around and write a very prescriptive prescription, and and that that's actually quite silly. So I think now there's these triple face bags where where all the three components are, are lined up, and all you have to do is you know um, get the bag activated by opening all the, the three sections, and away it goes into a mix that that can then be just delivered. And many uh, of the bigger ICUs and and big hospitals now are moving towards just having two or three types of TPN in their hospital. Therefore, they, they don't have them purposely made um, for, for patients. So I think that's all right. Um, how much to give? Um, well, look, I, I tend to value the dietitians in our unit at, at doing an assessment of what the patients might need. If uh, many many of us in, in our countries have dietitians that come and spend the time doing whatever it is, either uh, some formula based on uh, on the patient's illness and weight, and etc., uh, and I think that's pretty reasonable as far as we can tell. There's no better evidence to support another method. If there is, it would be indirect calorimetry, but uh, none, not not enough of us have. Uh, metabolic carts in our units to to assess the the patient's needs. So I guess you get the dietitian to come along and and uh, and then work out the right rate and then just try gently to get to that uh, over the next day or so. I guess the only uh, last comment to make um, is that if you don't have a dietitian in your unit, then something about 25 calories per kilogram of ideal body weight, not of their obese body weight if they are obese, uh, is probably a, a reasonable amount to start with per day. Uh, and I guess that, that, that gives us something to start with. Are there groups where underfeeding might be of an advantage? I, I, yeah, yes, there probably are, but you know, this, that's another area that's not well well studied. Uh, and there's been a movement towards hypocaloric or underfeeding uh, in in critical patients. It's probably more in the enteral area than it is for parental nutrition, partly because it's harder to give our enteral nutrition. So people are wondering whether we just we, sh- we should just give less uh, and, and then we'll get away with it. With parental nutrition, because it's easier to give exactly what you want, because you just, you know, there's less intolerance from the gut, then I guess we, uh, we've not seen as much study on the, uh, the, the underfeeding with parental nutrition. But I guess if you were to pick some patients that you might think that was a good idea, clearly patients who are very hyperglycemic or hyperlipidemic, which is rare, um, but if, if any of those things happen, then we'd probably want to underfeed uh, with our parental nutrition. And I guess some might say the sicker of our sickest patients, however you define that, whether it's you know a level of a mild organ failure or you know, a mod score or a sofa score or some degree of sepsis, uh, they might be the ones we underfeed, but there's really no hard evidence to tell us what to do there. I guess the, the next question is about components and having selected my, my uh, stock standard feed, um, perhaps I need to tweak it a little bit. And I guess the, the major one is glutamine and selenium and uh, what your thoughts are on that, particularly in view of the Signet trial last year. 
Yeah, I, I think these are another two controversial areas because we're starting to see a few studies with uh, varying information coming out, which doesn't surprise us, I suppose. But if we just take each in turn, um, glutamine's been the one that's, that's probably studied the best so far. Uh, and while there's been a little bit of supportive data around in, in some of the studies, uh, it seems that with the signature trial, which came out, as you say, this year and, and basically showed no benefit for for glutamine, uh, uh, plus and there's another study from a Scandinavian group, Scandinavian group uh, using glutamine which showed a similar result, no effect, then I guess we're starting to wonder whether glutamine is as needed as has been suggested over the last five or ten years, where, 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 which had become the case. There, there's, a, there's a a really large study that, again, a Canadian group's doing, um, giving glutamine uh, as, a, as a sort of drug rather than in the feed. You just give it as an intravenous injection uh, once or twice a day on top of the standard feeds that the patients are getting. And uh, that's very close to being finished. It's about two or 300 patients short of a 1,200 uh, patient study. So everyone's quite excited to hear what that study's going to show, which will probably be out in the next 12 months. So in the meantime, most of the recommendations tell us we should consider glutamine with our parental nutrition. And in, in our hospital, we certainly do that. Uh, but I guess the, the evidence is not hard. There hasn't been evidence of glutamine's harmful, but I guess, you know, it's got a cost and, and at the moment we give it, but let's wait and see what the Canadians have got to say. Oh, sorry, I better keep going. I better keep going on the selenium question, Todd. The, the selenium, I guess, is less, there's less data than there is about glutamine. Um, but the signet trial showed perhaps a benefit in one small subgroup of uh, patients that stay longer with selenium, but otherwise it, it, it really didn't show a huge benefit to to patients. Uh, so we're still left waiting for more work on on that before we give it. Uh, there's there's I guess other micronutrients that might. Be beneficial as well, um, you know, trace elements and and other ones we may not even measure. Uh, and some people have the, the the view that we should just get one of those vials of um, trace elements or multivitamins and, and give it to all patients in our ICUs. Again, I'm not sure that there's, there's data for it, but it, it, given uh, a lot of people take multivitamins in health, it's probably not unreasonable that we do that. Again, taking account of the, the cost. Is there any best um, multivitamin preparation available or are there, are there keys that we should be looking out for? Uh, I, I really don't think this, that, that it matters. I think it's a bit like getting the multivitamins in the chemist for health. <laughs> you know, you, you basically go and get one that looks like it's reasonable. We have one in our hospital. I'm not even sure exactly what the brand is and, and uh, that's what we would use for most uh, most patients who are on, on parental nutrition. You should give everybody a Barocca and a cup of coffee by the sounds of things. Absolutely. I guess one of the problems with the pre-mixed ones is the choice of lipid and whether to give lipid at all. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, the, this has been a, an area that's obviously debated heavily because of the different manufacturers. Uh, and, and, you know, as it is currently in Australia and New Zealand, the two major manufacturers, uh, one of them has a... a uh, they, all, they both make standard uh, soybean-based lipids, which have been the old-fashioned ones that have been used for years. But more recently, uh, one's been making a, a, a lipid-containing uh, fat, uh, sorry, fish oils, uh, as well as uh, other other more modern omega-3 type 
fatty acids and they, they call it SMOF because it's got uh, a mixture of um, medium chain triglycerides as well as the olive oil and the fish oils. Uh, and then the other companies making uh, predominantly an olive oil, uh, olive oil liquid. I'm not sure that there's any hard evidence to choose between the two of those and given most of us in, in our hospitals will have the decision for the, which company makes the parental nutrition for that hospital taken out of our hands, uh, it probably doesn't matter. But certainly the modern lipids with these omega-3 fatty acids sound like they ought to be better. Again, you know, based on information from, you know, health, nutrition, uh, you'd think so. Uh, and there's some small studies, uh, mostly from Europe, which have shown that there's, there's often been some benefit to some sort of cytokine or a surrogate outcome by using uh, one of these modern lipids over a soybean-based one. So in general, I think we probably should use them, but of course we'd probably want more studies before we could be really clear about that. Andrew, thanks for joining me on the podcast today to discuss this fascinating and controversial area. No problems, Todd. More podcasts like this one can be found at our website, www.crit-iq.com.au.